Well, good morning, everyone, and let's grab our Bibles and uh, get into the book of Zechariah. We are uh, in uh, chapter 9 today. Chapter 9. There we go. We're actually looking at chapters 9, 10, and 11, and I entitled this lesson Encouragement Number 5. It's the promise of strength. We've had the the promise of purpose and the promise of his presence and 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 the serious promises that God has given all of us through the prophetic parts of the book of Zechariah. And now we're into a, a section where there is a promise of his strength. Now, just a bit of introduction, just a kind of an overview, a reminder, if you will. Um, the, the book of Zechariah, you could wear several sets of glasses when you go to understand it. One set of glasses that you could wear is, is a prophetic sense or, or even a historical sense, a sense where the book of Zechariah actually is depicting various eras of God's, God's dealing with mankind. And so if you took chapters 1 through 8, uh, which we saw were the, the visions and the dreams and so on, and then the, and the, the uh, four messages that he got from God, that, that would depict or show the prophetic parts of Israel being under the rule of the Medo-Persian kingdom. Now, if you're not into history, I get it, but you'll remember that they were captured and taken off into exile by the Babylonians. Well, the next empire after that are the Medes and the Persians. And so the the description in chapters 1 through 8, while all those other things that we already told you about are true, you also could look at that as as a time in history. Okay, so then you turn the page... When you get to chapters 9 and 10, now you're going to see Israel under the Greeks. So the next ruling uh, force in that part of the world would have been the the Greeks. And then when we get to chapter 11, it would be a depiction, an account, a veiled, yes, but an understanding of the Roman rule over Israel. So we're just coming down historically the various ruling powers. And then when we get to chapters 12 and 13 and 14, they're all about end times. They're all about the end, Israel during the last days. So that's one way you could look at the, at the book of Zechariah. And because it's prophetic in nature, it's very difficult. Just like we were having a conversation a little while ago, does such and such mean so and so? Well, the answer is maybe. I mean, I don't know, you don't know, I don't have the mind of God to be able to tell you definitively this is what he meant by that. Uh, any more than any other Bible teacher could give you. But it would it would behoove you to realize that while Zechariah was a real preacher and a real man of God, he also was given the ability to write things about stuff in the future. And what's fascinating to me, and ought to be to you, is that pr- fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest tools we have to communicate the gospel. Because when someone says, well, you know, the Bible, it's got so many errors in it, and, you know, it's old, and whatever. One of the tools, not the only one, but one of the tools you can use is, well, let me just wow you here for a moment. Here are some things that were said 2,000 years before they came to pass. They came to pass exactly as they were prophesied about. Isn't that a little interesting? It doesn't commi- It doesn't convince anyone of anything specifically, but light bulbs start to come on. And there are so many prophecies about Jesus himself, over 300 of them that were fulfilled in his life, and then lots and lots of others. So prophecy matters, even though it's an inexact science trying to, to relate to it. 
The thing about our chapters in front of us today, uh, 9, 10, and 11, and then, of course, 12 through 14, those chapters, after chapter 8, there is a big gap in the, in the writing of Zechariah. He's an old man now. So he started as a young pastor, a young preacher, a young prophet in the first few chapters, and now we've got him as an old man. The, the latter portion of the book of Zechariah gets dumped into two, two boxes. One box, or both of them would be called oracles. An oracle is just a, 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 a preaching, a, a, a speaking about, prim, primarily speaking about the future. The Bible talks, it, talks about it, uses the term the burden of the, of the prophet. It's just, it was laid upon him to write these things about the future. So there are two oracles. The first one covers 9, 10, and 11, and the second one covers 12, 13, and 14. So we're going to look at the first oracle, the first burden, the first, the first uh, bit of prophecy specifically uh, that, that's given to Zechariah this morning. So in chapters 9 and 10, if you were going to label it with some sort of a, a title, you might say the coming king. One of the, the old songs that I was uh, watching, one of the videos uh, yesterday, was the Gaither uh, band, and uh, it was The King is Coming. What, what era would that have been, 80s? The King is yeah, Coming? 80s. Maybe 80s? And I blasted that thing as loud as my earphones would go, or my earbuds would go, and, and sitting there at my desk bawling like a baby. What a powerful uh, theme, and that, that song just captured it at a very early time in my Christian life. But the coming king is what Zechariah wants to talk about. Now, very interestingly, chapter 9, especially the first few verses, verse 7 or so, is also a, a reflection of, of, the, of the march of Alexander the Great through, th- through the Promised Land. So you say, Alexander the Great, man, first she's talking Medes, Persians, and then, you know, Greeks, and now we're Alexander the Great. Yeah, Alexander the Great existed. Uh, he was a, a Greek, a Seleucid king. His time frame was, you know, the 350s, 356 to 323 B.C., before the Lord. So, so his time frame, if you know anything about him, he started marching from, from Macedonia and he went east and he came over and got near, you know, Syria and Lebanon, what we would call Syria and Lebanon today, and then went south, went right straight through uh, Israel, uh, ended up going down into Egypt and then turned around, came back up through and then kept going east. And his conquest went as far as India. Uh, I was reading about him, and it, it, it's a fascinating. Young man, only 30-some-odd years old when he died. Uh, all that conquest. Well, verses 1 through, through 7 could be, if you looked at a historical overview, covering the, the, the march of Alexander the Great from the northern part of, of Israel right on down through, actually from, from up in the Lebanon area down through Syria and, and all the way down. Um, I want to I want to glance at them. I'm not going to read all of it with you today. We'd be here just reading these few chapters. But it says, "The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and will rest upon Damascus." Hadrach is just another name of a city in Damascus. Damascus is in Syria. It's still a city in Syria. It says, "For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and upon Hamath too, which borders on it, and upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful." Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She's heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. Ekron, too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, 
and Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. So, pause. Uh, a little bit of work on your part, and you're going to understand that Hadrach and Hamath and and uh, and uh, and Damascus—they're all up in the northern part of the, uh, uh, to the north of Israel, what we would call current-day uh, Lebanon. Tyre and Sidon are cities in current-day Lebanon. And then he's just coming south. He hits the city of Tyre. That is an incredible story. Go 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 Google Tyre today and, and look at its destruction on how Alexander the Great destroyed it. And and in particular. The, the idea that it was impenetrable. It was the most impenetrable city in the then known world. And Alexander stomped it, just as God is going to stomp those uh, other cities at a, at a time in, in, in the future. He mentions five or four of, of the five cities in, in, um, in uh, uh, Philistia, Philistia, I can't say the word, the Ashkelon, Gaza, um, uh, and, and the others. He mentions four of the five cities. That's where Goliath was from. So, so Goliath, uh, the enemy of David, was from those Philistine uh, towns, and they're mentioned in this in this stomping down through. We're 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 getting a sense that something very significant is about to happen. Verse eight says Jerusalem is going to get going to get delivered. But I will defend my house against these marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. And what's he keeping watch for? Well, verse 9 reveals this messianic prophecy regarding Christ. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in your mind, there should be going beep, 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 bells going off. Because we just went through this, the season of Easter, and when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the day you and I call Palm Sunday, what did he ride? Exactly this, the fulfillment of this prophecy of, of Zechariah uh, 9, uh, 9. It is definitely a prophecy regarding the coming of the, of the king, capital K, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Just back a bit. Find the book of Isaiah, easy find, and then verse or chapter 9. Uh, a parallel passage, if you will, a messianic passage, referring to this coming king, capital K. So Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, let's see, we'll look at... Uh, Parts of 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for those who are born in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtala. He's just talking about Israel. And in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On, uh, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged their nation. You've increased their joy. They rejoice over you as people rejoice at a harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. And then and then drop down to verse number 6. Should be a very familiar passage. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Note that there's no comma after wonderful. It's an adjective of the word counselor. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, this is a messianic 
passage. This is talking specifically about Jesus Christ. But has that happened? Part of it, you know, for unto us a child is born, that part. What about the increase of the government and peace? Not so. And that's where we get the second coming. The first time coming, you could draw a line right in your Bible and go, uh, and, and across that line, you were dividing up the first coming to the second coming. Yeah. Hi, Jennifer. Go away. Um, that'll sound so good. <laughs> Bad thing about these kind of watches, you can turn it all off if you want on your phone, but they'll still ring in. Anyway, I wanted you to see this prophetic passage in, in, in Isaiah 9. And again, he's just picking up precisely what Zechariah is referring to. The, the king is coming. Now, he came once as a baby, yes. Uh, a child a child was born to us but he has not come and set up his government and there is not that peace from that that reign but but Zechariah has it in mind he sees it in in uh, chapter 9 verse 9 and and even uh, chapter uh, 9 verse 10 and so on when we get to chapter uh, 9 verse 11 it says as for you because of the blood of my covenant with you I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit so let's pause just a second. What's the basis of the strength and the authority of the coming Messiah? The basis is a blood covenant. Now, just for a moment, I remind you of a blood covenant, what that is. In the Old Testament, they made covenants or agreements, contracts, if you will, lots of different ways. Sometimes they exchanged salt. The salt was like money. And so they'd get a bag of salt, and yes, I'm buying that piece of property from you. You now have my bag of salt. There is an agreement. It's, it's solid. It's, it's happened. Sometimes they gave shoes. Uh, in the book of Ruth, when Boaz is out there uh, making his arrangements to get her, he takes off one of his shoes and, 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 and passes it on. Uh, a, a more significant way that they indicated a covenant was, was the blood covenant. And that would be in Genesis 15 when God called Abraham aside and began to tell him, this is my covenant with you. This is what's going to happen. You're going to have a kid, and from that kid will become a whole nation, and I'm going to bless everybody through that nation. That covenant, that promise, that contract was done in blood. But at that point, it was the blood of animals. They would slit the throat of, a, 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 for example, a goat or a lamb, and they'd cut it in half. One half over here and one half over here. If it was a small animal, they'd just put two animals and they'd make a line with these slit in half animals. And the idea is both of the participants of the covenant would walk through that line, thereby signifying, hey, if I break this, this, this is what ought to happen to me. I'm not kidding. It's a promise. You know, it's a blood covenant. It happened to be the blood of animals, but it was a, it was a high-level covenant. In the case of Genesis 15, God puts Abraham to sleep, doesn't let him walk through. Only he walks through that line. The entire covenant was on him and on the shedding of his blood. The new covenant that you and I embrace, our salvation is dependent upon, is the fact that Jesus shed his blood. It is a blood covenant. Well, Zechariah is getting a, a, a glimpse into this, an idea about it. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will, and he, and he goes on to say, I will free your prisoners. Um, I, will, I will restore twice as much to you. I, I will bend Judah as I bend my bow, and I'll fill it. 
uh, with Ephraim. I will rouse your seeds against the other guys, the Greeks, and I'll make you like a, a warrior sword. This is this is great news. The strength, the authority of the Messiah, is in in indicative of of their liberation and their blessings, all based on the blood covenant. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse number 11 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. If the blood had not be shed, been shed in the Old Testament with the animals, there would not have been the rolling forward of the penalty of their sin. If Jesus Christ's blood had not been shed for you and for me, there would be no remission of our sin. The blood is important. So that gets us to chapter 10. We're, we're still on the theme of a, a coming king. And now we're going to see a little bit about his reign. What's it like? Ask the Lord for rain, R-A-I-N, in the springtime. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. And then he, th- stop right there. That's the blessing part. All, all that you need, I'm going to provide during the messianic rain. And then he goes, the idols, they speak deceit. The diviners, they see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. What happens when that when that occurs? Well, then the people wander like sheep, oppressed for the lack of a shepherd. So, so what he's saying is, during the reign of of the Messiah, yes, there will be incredible blessings for all of God's people, but during this time, you're going to see idols and diviners give you false information. They're going to lie to you. You know, the, there, there isn't a true shepherd walking among us right now. He sent his Holy Spirit to live in the life of his believers in the New Testament, but he's not physically here as a shepherd. He says in John 10 over and over again, I am the shepherd. My, the sheep hear my voice and they follow me. But that's in a spiritual sense. Certainly you and I do follow him. Yes, we know his voice. Yes, we can, we can respond. But, but not in a physical sense. What, what Zechariah is saying, this is a bad thing. They think they've got shepherds running around, uh, you know, looking out for their best. And, and it might be an idol, and it might be a diviner. It might be a, a guy who's over there telling them lies. And our world is full of that. Our young people are bombarded with messages that are all lies. And they're coming either from idols or diviners, from Satan's minions. And they're not, they're not always under the, the tutelage or, or the care of a true shepherd that will lead them to the ultimate shepherd of, of, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the coming king. They, uh, they are not the real deal. And then, as if to emphasize that, look at verse number four. Well, verse three says his anger burns against those those you know, false shepherds. He's going to punish those leaders. And then verse 4, from Judah, again Israel, will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. This Messiah, this king, the real deal, is is going to be pictured in all these ways. So he's picturing Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Now you and I don't know much about that because we don't build very many of our homes with huge boulders but if you were building a home back then or a building the temple or whatever you would cut out of a quarry great pieces of stone but you would start with the cornerstone and it has to be placed just right 
If the cornerstone is not in the right spot at the right elevation, angled exactly the right way, the whole thing goes to goes to pop. So the cornerstone is critical. Jesus Jesus uses that to refer to himself. In fact, in Isaiah, I want you to go to the book of Isaiah. Several times we're going to look at Isaiah in the next couple of minutes, so once you get it, don't don't close it. But Isaiah 28, this business about the Messiah being the cornerstone and Jesus being him, 28 uh, verse 16. Isaiah 28, 16. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, for a sure foundation, the one who trusts will never be dismayed. Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah King. Now, Zechariah also called him a, pent, uh, a tent peg. Look at uh, chapter 22 of Isaiah. Isaiah is full of prophecies, as you might imagine. And in chapter 22, look at verses uh, 23 or so. I'll start with verse 22. 22, 22. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of the Father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring, its its offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. The the tent peg. So um, two things about that. If you made your house... Of wood, they didn't have nails. That would have, metal would have been very precious, any kind of metal. So they would make pegs, like like when you watch guys build uh, log cabins. Sometimes they'll use a wooden peg. They'll hollow out a hole and and set it up, and the hole in the piece that, it, that it's coming up against, and shove a, 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 a piece of wood in that hole, a, a tent peg, and it holds together the frame of the house. Or if you literally take it as a, as a peg for a tent, if you were a Bedouin, you had to anchor down that tent so when the wind blew, you didn't go crazy, you would use a tent peg. I, I would stretch it out and stick it in something firm, not, not easy, uh, malleable sand, and you'd drive it into the ground. It would become a, 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 a foundational piece. Jesus is the tent peg. Look at Isaiah 61. Again, a lot of prophecy by by, Zachary, or by uh, Isaiah in chapter 61. Now Jesus is going to be referred to as this bow, a fighter, if you will, on behalf of Israel. 61, 1, 2, and 3. Um, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for, for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of a splendor. Now, the, the point being here is that this is something that's going to be shot out. Let me look at let me go, go verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. He is the bow, the fighter, uh, the one who steps up for them and provides all these things. And lastly, he's the leader over every leader. Zechariah is saying that this Messiah king is going to uh, fight and overthrow all, all of the horsemen. He is going to be the 
the ruler over every ruler. And that's exactly how he's depicted in, in Revelation 19. Here he's referred to as the king of kings and lord of lords. So no matter what position you might have in any society, your rulership, your leadership is going to be under the Messiah King. Zechariah is just, just going to town here about the coming king. Back in chapter 10, he's going he's gonna to say that Israel is going to get regathered. And, and when they get regathered, they're going to be strengthened. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, save the house of Joseph. I will restore them. I have compassion on them. Um, it, in verse 7, Ephraimites will become like mighty men. Their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their kids are going to see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice. I'll signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. I, in verse 10, I'll bring them back from Egypt, gather them from Assyria, bring them back from Gilead and Lebanon, and there will be not room enough for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble and the surging sea will be subdued. All the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought down. Egypt's scepter will pass away. And verse 12, I will strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they will walk. The coming king. King is coming. So almost like uh, click, let me go to another thought. Zechariah chapter 11 shifts to a, a discussion of, of rejection of two kinds of shepherds that are not worth their salt. He's just talking a moment before about God strengthening his people and, and being there for them. And then he shifts in chapter 11 and says, let me give you two examples of, of, of guys that are not doing it right, of shepherds that are not like the king uh, that is coming. And, and in, uh, in chapter 11, he starts off with this little... Uh, I guess a, a reflection of his love for, for creation and, and, and he talks about how even creation is mourning the fact that there's coming judgment. He says, open your doors, O Lebanon, so, so that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O pine tree, for the cedar has fallen, the stately trees are ruined. Wail, the oaks of Bashan and the dense forest have been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds. Their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lust thicket of the Jordan is ruined. So, so he's going to say, all right, judgment is coming. These, these shepherds are not cutting it. And in, in verses 4 to 14, he has Zechariah act out something. It's like he says, come here, Zechariah. They're not getting it. Let, let, let's do a little role play. I want, I want you to act like uh, a shepherd. I, I want you to... I want you to act it out so that I can can use this uh, acting out as a picture of the judgment that's coming. So, verse 4, this is what the Lord my God says. Pasture the flock marked for slaughter. Now, great, fun job. He, said, he doesn't say, hey, go take this, this flock and take them up to the highland and spend the summer with them while they feast on the, you know, the summer grass and enjoy every moment with all those sheep and lambs. No, I want you to act out what it's like to be a, a, a dumb shepherd, uh, my word, not his, a, a, a false, unloving, uncaring shepherd who's got the job of, of, of shepherding a flock that's marked for slaughter. So they're lined up outside the slaughterhouse and you get to be the shepherd to them. 
That's what he's acting out for them. Um, he, he goes on to say, their, their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them, for I will no longer have pity on the people of the land declares the Lord. I, I will hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king. They will oppress the land. I'll not rescue them. So, so Zachariah says, I pastured the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. He used two staffs, one called favor and the other union. I have no idea what those mean. And I pastured the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds, and we're not sure who they were or what that means, but he got rid of three of them. Then I took my staff called favor and I broke it, revoking the covenant I'd made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. If not, keep it. So they paid me, ding, 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 something should be going off in your mind, 30 pieces of silver. So again, the prophetic aspect of the book of Zechariah is screaming at us here. These, these poor, inappropriate shepherds who can't save their people from this judgment that God is going to bring to pass are, are now going to pay this guy. And they're going to pay him 30 pieces of silver, which is exactly the cost that was paid to Judas to betray the Lord Jesus. So then in verses 15 and 16, we've got another role playing. In 15 and 16, then the Lord said, we'll take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For I'm going to rise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy but will eat the meat of the choice sheep tearing off their hoofs. Woe to this worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. So, so you know, second role play Zechariah is now giving a picture of a shepherd who doesn't care about his people. So much so that he is, he is going to get hurt. Uh, there is going to be a, a wound. And if you think about it and who it is that's being referenced here, yes, any, anyone who leads uh, people astray could come into that, that general definition. But more specifically, he's talking about those who spiritually attempted to lead people and do so falsely. And who's the, the epitome of that but the Antichrist, who shows up on the scene in the book of Revelation and, and does everything he can during the first three and a half years of the tribulation to garner people to him. He says peace and safety. You need, you need uh, you know, uh, medication from that dastardly... Uh, disease that's ramping all over the world, I, I have it. You need uh, money to find this, uh, fix, fix this issue of, of crops or whatever, I've got it. You need a steady hand over the whole world to bring people together, I'm your man. That's the Antichrist. The first three and a half years, he says peace and safety. He garners to himself on a false basis the world's uh, care. And what happens mid? Right in the middle of the tribulation, he goes in, slaughters an animal, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did in reality uh, in, in Israel, and slaughters a pig and, and smears the blood on the altar, which would have been the worst thing that could have been done to Israel to, to devastate them, that he was now in control, not this guy that they've been offering sacrifices to. And that's the picture here. And he is, he is hurt. 
this is a prophetic picture that the Antichrist will indeed be hurt. And if you know anything about the Antichrist, he does have an injury. And, and Zechariah is being given a picture of that. So, so while in, verse, in chapter 10, we got all these words about the coming true king who is going to shepherd his people, we, we, we get to chapter 11, and, and what do we get? Or, or 9 and 10, rather. When we get to 11, what we get is uh, a rejection. This is false. This, this guys, these guys who are stepping, stepping to the plate, they're not going to be helpful to you. Um, we, you read that and you go, okay, I'm getting a little bit of a picture of prophecy. Uh-huh. I see at least two key pro- prophetic uh, utterances here about Jesus Christ. Got it. I can connect that to the New Testament. Yeah, he promises he's going to come as a king. Great. So what? But I don't want you to miss the big encouragement in this passage. Look back in chapter 10. Look at verse 6 and look at verse 12. I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. Verse 12. I will strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they will walk. Look guys, the message here for them and for us is that God is putting himself on the line when contrasted with the false shepherds who are only out for what they want for themselves. He, on this hand, is saying, I will give you strength. I will, in essence, give you anything you need. I will strengthen. I will save. I will strengthen. And in his name, then you get to walk. The Hebrew word for strengthen just literally means to grow strong. So if you go to the gym and you work out and you get those muscles going, you grant you, you uh, grow in strength. But, but the Hebrew term can mean grow in strength for bad purposes or grow in strength for good purposes. So when, when Pharaoh was, was uh, being, his heart was being hardened by God, the uh, passages there in the early chapters of Exodus, when it says God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, it's the same word. He, he's, he's strengthening his heart. He's having that heart grow firm, only in this case negatively. But when he uses that same exact word in our chapter 11, he's using it to mean that, that it, is, it, is, it is growing in the sense of keeping hold of or, or to be strong. I will, I will help you hold on. I will help you to be strong. Now, that promise from the Lord applies to, to my heart right today. And it ought to apply to your heart as well. Whether you're in a season of great heartache or not, he is promising strength to bring to bear at the moment when you need it. You don't have the strength to go through this or that or those things if you're not actually going through them. So people all... God would, at the moment, God would provide the strength necessary for that set of circumstances. Now sometimes God uses others to come strengthen us. We, we saw, certainly saw that this weekend in, in this situation here at the school, that the school's facing right now. But, but think about this passage. I want you to turn there. One, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. So, so sometimes God uses people to, to help strengthen us 
1 Samuel 23. It's the story of Jonathan and David, a familiar passage probably to you. But look at 23.16. So um, verse 15 says, While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. Saul was hard on his trail. And it says in verse 16, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish, didn't have him come in to him, didn't send him a message, didn't send him an email, didn't send him a text, didn't have food delivered to him. He went to David, and he helped him find strength in God. And he helped him find strength in God. Sometimes God will have those key people in our lives circle us at that moment when we have nothing, and they help us find strength. Now, sometimes they do it by saying absolutely nothing. The guys in the book of Job who show up theoretically to encourage Job, later they don't. But the Bible says at the beginning, they sat there for seven days and said nothing. When we sat with with Tracy over the weekend, for the most part, we said nothing. We were just there. It was a a sign and a symbol. There was a a tone of prayerful uh, attachment that didn't have to be put into words. But, but having people around us does help us find strength. They can pray with us. They can pray for us. They can direct our attention to Scripture. I sent uh, Trace a note, and all it said was, there's another in the fire. That's all it said. If you don't know that song, you ought to go listen to that one. You don't have to say much. It doesn't have to be, you know, spiritually your Ph.D., best verses. It can be a word, a comment, a touch, a song. But sometimes God uses people. And if there is a scenario around you where you see someone hurting and they're lacking strength, they're, they're a wonderful believer, but they're just lacking strength. The circumstances are draining them. Then, then God may use you to just come alongside. Just be there. But most of the time, he expects us to be able to find strength in him. You're still in 1 Samuel. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 30, verse number 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in his spirit because of his sons and daughters. This is wanting to destroy the Amalekites. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Don't don't live your life on someone else's spiritual strength or someone else's spiritual power. Learn and develop and walk with the Lord so you have your own reservoir. Your walk with the Lord is not mine. Yes, it's, it's wonderful to have seasoned Christians around you in times of crises, of course, and yes, maybe they're thinking a little more clearly and can direct you to some scripture or something that can be an encouragement. But, but we have to be able to walk our own life. We, we need to have our backpacks full. And, and, and we need to be able to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And that only comes when we walk with Him. When, when we, we walk with Him in, in great moments and not so great moments. And didn't... And also in just the everyday moments. During a crisis, God does indeed strengthen his people. 
and we can hear his voice through things like scripture being read or scripture being memorized or as we rehearse stories in our mind. If you are unfamiliar with the stories of the Bible, how are you going to rehearse them? How are you going to say to yourself, hey, just the same way you did that for so-and-so, Lord, I'm in need. Father, just the way you da-da-da, please, if you don't know the stories, you have to read the Bible. And, and I'm all for devotionals. I, I'm all for, you know, Jesus calling. But Jesus calling is not the word of God. It might have a great idea, and I'm not knocking it, but I am saying it's not enough. You're, you're settling for, for Kool-Aid and, and Jell-O when you could be eating steak. So, so, so become familiar with your book, the book. Read through it, even though maybe a bunch of you go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's how I am going through the book of Isaiah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But over years and time and study and listen to somebody else preach and blah, 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 it grows and grows and grows. And now I'm, what, 50 years later in the Lord? I got a bunch of stories in my head. I can strengthen myself by re rehearsing them. I, I can do that through music, through kind words, as we said, of friends. And, and even an extended walk you know, at the beach or in nature some way, it reminds you of the God behind that. When I, when I go to the beach, my friend Barb can just sit and look. I cannot do that. I get nothing out of just sitting looking. But, but, I'm, but if I stand there and I'm watching the waves, I go, what makes them come? Why does the tide go out? Who says, reverse, bring in the tide? Why is it high, sometimes low? Why does it go under and sometimes over? It draws me into the creator. The same way walking through the mountains does and smelling pine and, and a thousand other ways. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And then the, the thing I want to leave with you is even after the crisis is over, I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk. So after the immediate blow-up or, or draining or, or whatever of the crisis is passed, that, that our strength then comes from the Lord to keep on going. Until you breathe your last breath, he has a purpose. He gave you life for you to live it on his behalf. Acts chapter 3 and verse number 16 says, By the faith in the name of Jesus... This man whom you see and know was made strong. He's referring to a guy that got healed. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. So the, the healed man is now walking around and they're going, yeah, yeah, the Lord did a work. And when we have those things in our lives and we, we come to understand who's behind it and draw strength from our walk, People looking at you, yeah, yeah, there, there goes, there goes Susie. She's walking in the room. She likes to live. Marcia didn't curl up and die when she lost her love. And a thousand other applications we could make. So I say to you, Zechariah was saying that Israel had a future and that God was going to strengthen them to, to walk into that future. And I remind you today, you and I have a future. And he will strengthen us, and we'll walk into it. Okay. Father, thank you even for the confusing 
parts of the scriptures, even the part that we don't really get, the part that we know is prophetic, but we can't nail it. We can't define it. Perhaps it's just the weakness in my teaching, or or maybe it's just that it's such a high and lofty thing we can't get it without the use of your spirit. But Father, I can walk away understanding that you promise strength, and you, you promise we'll have it so we can walk in your name. I pray that for my friends, those within the sound of my voice and, and those around us. Lord, we love you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for coming. It would have been no fun without you. Before we go this morning, is there any comments? Or I see we're a little bit ahead of schedule. Anything that someone might want to mention or 